Uh, hello, I'm Craig Souser. I'm the president of JLS Automation. Um, automation to me uh, has been around a long time and uh, it's certainly changed. It's grown from the, the days of mechanization and relay logic into PLCs into all types of different processor-based logic systems for machinery. Hello and welcome to This Is Automation. I'm your host, Corey Dallas, and we're excited to have you with us today. So today we're gonna to be talking with Craig Souser from JLS Automation. We're gonna be talking about packaging automation and specifically in the food industry. And we're gonna be learning a lot about JLS and some of their machines and how they differentiate with technology, robotics, and automation. Thanks for joining us, Craig. You're welcome, great to be with you. So Craig, to get us kicked off, I wanted to talk a little bit about you before we start talking about technology and JLS. Uh, so could you give everybody a, a quick introduction to uh, yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so my father, Joseph Souser, was the founder of JLS, um, started the company back in 1955. Um, I grew up quite literally in the business. It was in our home. Um, so this is all I've ever really known in terms of profession. Um, I certainly enjoy what I do, seeing the company through a lot of times of change, um, a lot of times of turmoil and tumultuous markets, um, lots and lots of challenges. Um, today, of course, we're challenged with COVID as many companies are, all companies are, and um, dealing with that. But, um, you know, I, I love what I do. I really enjoy the people I work with especially when I see them, which is not as much as I'd like. Um, and I think JLS has a great future uh, based on where we are in the, in the space we're serving. Excellent. So I think you, you may have already answered this, but um, can you talk about uh, what your first exposure to automation and robotics was and, and maybe how that uh, kind of informed the, the path that JLS has taken over time? Yeah, our... our um, my first exposure to, to robotics, um, which really was some of my early exposure to automation, was you know back in the the early '80s, um, dating myself a bit. But we represented um, Toshiba as a manufacturer way back when, and they had, of course, PLCs and mostly known for their drives and motors. But um, they also had robots, and we tried to market those for a period of time and. I think we were a bit early. Um, we were a bit naive. Uh, the markets weren't really ready yet. They had a pretty, pretty good offering, as it turns out, but um, not even sure where where that whole product offering stands. But it, but it was a good opportunity to learn um, about the industry that was, you know, developing at that point, changing rapidly, um, and you know, certainly became an industry that was dominated by. Um, robots made outside the United States. So can, can you talk about, you know, JLS as a company and uh, kind of the market that you play in and some of the technology that you use? Yeah, as, as a company today, you know, we're, we're focused um, almost exclusively on the food industry. Once in a while, we'll get pulled into another application where our basic technological offering you know, has value for someone, but 
Um, we, we do a lot in meat, poultry, cheese, um, areas where high sanitary construction is important. Um, that is part of how we differentiate. We are known for our hygienic design of equipment and knowledge of, of you know, how to handle tooling and, and vision systems and everything else associated with um, the type of robotics that we offer for food packaging automation. Um, we do work in the primary packaging space as well as secondary packaging, uh, but uh, everything we do is stainless. Everything we do is aimed at handling food safely, and um, most of it is done at relatively high speeds. Can you give us a, a quick explanation of the difference between primary packaging and secondary packaging for, for those that may not be familiar with those terms? Sure. So primary packaging, um, honestly, is just that. It's the initial way that the, the product, um, whether that's uh, slices of meat or cheese, hamburger, you know, whatever it is, um, is, is going to get safely contained and create a barrier for um, food safety. Um, could be as simple as a flow wrap or an over wrap. Um, could be, you know, a vacuum pack vacuum pack package or a map tray. Um, but, you know, it, it's put into some type of container or wrapping that is going to preserve it um, and, you know, protect it mainly from oxygen um, and, you know, allow it to, to be shelf-stable and fresh and safe to the consumer. Secondary packaging, on the other hand, is taking those wrapped items um, and either putting in into something like an intermediate storage unit or device container like a um, carton. Uh, lots of our products are carton today's, uh, in today's packaging. And, um, but in all cases, they end up in some kind of a shipper or a case, which is usually corrugate. Um, sometimes they're plastic trays like bread, but um, you know, it's that secondary packaging operation that really allows something to get protected for shipment or protected for display on a shelf um, so that it can go out to the consumer. So can you, can you talk a little bit more about the, the markets that you serve? Um, where might someone see a JLS machine actually being used? What kind of facility? Yeah, so we're, we're in a lot of USDA regulated facilities. Um, you know, I, I, Really shouldn't mention any names, but some some names that are household words or strong or household brands, um, strong regional players. That um, you know, it, it's very common these days for our team um, all over the country to walk into their local grocery store and look in the baked goods area, look in the meat counter, or the meat um, chests, and and see items that we've helped package or put into a case for shipment. Excellent. So um, there, there's a really interesting video about the history of JLS that was uh, somewhat recently posted. I think part two uh, may have just come out. Um, and it, it talks about mm -hmm. the origins of JLS, um, obviously founded by your father, which you've, you've already mentioned. Uh, one of the interesting yep. things that, that I took away from that is that you said that uh, one of the most memorable sayings uh, that you remember from your father is, at the end of the day, all you have left is your reputation. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And then, you know, as, as a secondary question, how does that, um, you know, impact the way that you lead JLS and the way that JLS operates? 
Yeah, well, it, obviously for me to remember it all these years later, it did leave a lasting impression. So, um, but I, but I think it speaks true um, to this day that um, you know your, your reputation is is so important as a as an individual. Um, speaks to your integrity um, as a person, as a company. You know, doing the right thing, serving the customer, um, looking after their interests, and times even when their interests are, are going to have to outweigh yours for longer term relationship reasons. Um, so, you know, we've worked hard to keep the reputation um, strong and the brand equity strong in the same way. Um, and today I reinforce that with our team um, with, a you know, a couple of anecdotes that we use, um, one of which is the single most important order we ever get from any customer is the second one um, because that means our reputation within their walls has grown grown strong and they're rewarding us with more business um, repeat business is much easier to acquire than new customers so you know we cherish that um, and you know uh, another uh, you know anecdote that I like to, to quote is from the folks at Harley Davidson when they turned that business around um, way back when, um, when they, they asked two questions that, that if answered properly, I think are very instructive. And they are, what do you want your customers to say about you? And what are you willing to do to get them to say it? Um, so I challenge our team to think about those um, thoughts and those questions frequently and statements and you know believe in that and um, really wear that uh, uh, as we interact with our customer base so i wanted to to kind of stay here for a minute um you, you mentioned you know some of the anecdotes that uh you, you share with your team on a regular basis can you talk about you know from a, a leadership perspective how do you make sure that you know this this kind of cultural ideology uh, that has come to embody you know jls as a company how do you make sure that that, you know, as you scale and grow with more team members, how do you make sure that that stays a, a core focus? Yeah, and that, that is a concern. Um, you know, we we worry about our culture getting diluted with, with new folks coming in and not always knowing if they're going to truly embrace it or not. So one of the many steps in our, our um, continuously evolving onboarding process is that all of our new um, team members attend a session that we call um, JLS 101, and I, I do that. Um, I go through our history, our values, our commitment to them, what we expect from them, um, and I share, you know, these these thoughts, um, these statements, and and um, so they they hear it essentially from day one or let's say week one, um, but then it's repeated and. Um, it's something we talk about quite a bit. Um, we want to make sure they embrace it. We want to make sure they're wearing it and that it's noticeable for our customers and and partners and people that, you know, our suppliers that are important to us, that we interact with them in a fair way, in a way that they enjoy doing business with us um, and want to continue that relationship. Excellent. So, so let's talk about the food packaging industry as a whole. Uh, for just a second, can can you just give us an idea of what the automation and technology landscape is like? And, you know, maybe as a follow on to that, do you feel that it's, um, you know, very technologically advanced or a little behind? What's what's your impression? 
Um, I, you know, I think when you talk about robots specifically, um, food packaging still has a long way to go versus um, certainly if you compare it, contrast it to number one, the automobile industry, which is heavily mechanized from a robotic standpoint or things like semiconductor or assembly operations for, you know, cell phones and, and that kind of thing. So, um, Within the food space, um, some of the segments like confectionery have, generally speaking, been pretty well um, automated. Not saying there aren't large opportunities going forward in those spaces either, but um, the meat industry, poultry, um, cheese, certainly not as much. They're um, historically have relied on very tight ROI requirements or high thresholds that make automation um, hard to justify for them at least historically that has certainly changed in the last few years um, so I you know I think the the use of robots is new to a lot of our customer base the vast majority of our new customers are still customers that have very limited use of robotics in their facilities so um, many cases it's the first time that they've um, deploy a robot and, you know, we need to really support them through that process. So you say that there's some parts of the food packaging industry that they're a little more advanced than others. Can you talk about um, why that is and why you're seeing a shift in those, you know, traditionally um, not so heavily automated um, with, with robotics and such? Can you talk about why there's a shift right now? Yeah. I, I mean, the shift's going on now because, um, Four or five years ago, people labor on these lines to operate these lines became increasingly difficult to find. Um, you know, er everybody again was concerned about ROI and trying to get payback in 12, 14 months, which can be very difficult for, for certainly high advanced automation technology. Um, now, and, and again, the last several years, it's become almost crisis level or crisis level that. Um, lines are understaffed, facilities are understaffed, um, in, in, and I'm including temporary workers in, in those um, categories. So it's difficult to operate at full capacity in many cases. And that's not only just lost opportunity, sometimes it can be the difference between making money and not making money in the food industry. The food industry generally operates on razor thin margins. So you know, a few percentage points in either direction can really be a major difference on the performance of, of any organization. Yeah, I think we've seen that that issue of skilled labor coming up more and more often, um, not just in food packaging, but in pretty much every industry. Um, how do you think that, you know, the, the kind of global pandemic situation that we're in right now has has changed that or accelerated that? What's been the response from your, your customers? Well, um, I mean, what we're hearing more and more is, um, it, it, and it's impacted both sides of the equation. On the supply side, um, you have people that were working in these food plants, um, and the, the meat industry in particular seems to have gotten the, the real brunt of this. And I think there are some reasons for that. But um, you know, the, the people were afraid, and they're still afraid. They, you know, they've seen instances where there's been wide-scale outbreak of, of the virus. Um, they're working in 
close proximity to one another. Um, they're in a cold, wet environment, which the virus seems to like. And, um, you know, a lot of people get infected and they don't want to come back to work. On the other side, everybody that walks through those doors for the meat companies or these food companies is a risk. And they, you know, you can't tell um, with the asymptomatic problems um, that this virus is presented if someone's sick or not necessarily. So, you know, we're, we're finding ways obviously to do more testing, but mitigating that risk is something that automation offers. Absolutely. So, so maybe as a follow on to that, um, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the packaging industry right now, specifically food packaging? Is it what you just said or is there something else? I, I think the, the number one challenge for them going forward is, is going to be people, labor. Um, again, it was a challenge pre-COVID. It's created an even bigger desire to, to remove people from some of these operations. Um, but right behind that, actually finding how to deploy automation from a technical execution perspective. But in most cases, the biggest challenge we are faced with with our customers is is space. They, they have not um, even thought about automation when they've laid these lines out. Some of these plants, again, especially in the meat industry, are old. Um, space is at a huge premium. Um, operating in a USDA kind of environment where you're washing down and sanitizing is you know, daily as they, as they must, um, it, it just requires space to be minimized. And unfortunately, you know, automation takes room. Um, it's not always a whole lot more room than people, but it, you know, it can be in terms of, you know, feeding product to a line and taking it away. Um, so we've been challenged with that and tried to make our solutions very compact, have a minimal footprint, be easy to maintain, be easy to clean, um, because these environments are space-challenged and challenged environmentally. So how does hygienic design come into play in the types of systems that you're building? And do you feel that that can hinder the adoption of technology? Maybe there's something available, um, but it's you, you can't find a way to get it into a hygienic uh, form factor. Um, you know, the challenge that we've had is the, the ability to try to eliminate parts and eliminate mechanisms so that we, by definition, it's more hygienic. And, you know, one of the ways that companies like JLS has done that is with the use of vision guidance and um, not having to form patterns and form um, all the products into some kind of a, an arrangement to pick and place it. We can do that um, with the camera, with the, with the robot, um, targeting it properly and, you know, just allow for a simpler system, which in many cases is smaller. Um, but by nature, it's easier to make something that's less complicated, hygienic. So how do you see uh, future technologies, you know, more advanced robotics that are maybe leveraging machine learning and AI? Um, how do you see those playing a role in the future of manufacturing and the future of food packaging? Yeah, my, my belief is that AI, machine learning, they're not exactly the same thing, but very closely coupled. Um, that's the next big frontier for automation in general, and I think robotics. Um, there are barriers to it. Um, it's not trivial. Um, it's, you know, it's coming a long way, um, and it's, it's in our everyday lives. We're interfacing with AI technology in many forms, um, literally on a daily basis in, in our homes. 
trying to move it into the robotic space means that um, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to use something that's in the cloud and remotely accessed. I'm probably going to need to have it embedded in a machine controller. Um, that machine controller may not have the horsepower required to, to execute these incredibly advanced uh, technologies and, and bandwidth associated with them. So um, I think, you know, some way of getting that um, compressed and in a, in a smaller form factor in terms of size and memory usage and bandwidth, again, to allow it to happen at the machine level, um, I'm sure that's coming. Um, when that happens, um, I think the opportunities become endless. Um, I think it'll simplify some of our processes, simplify some of the challenges our customers are faced with. Um, I'm really excited about it, but I don't think it's right around the corner. I think there's still much work to be done, um, and it's got to be done by, I think, some some larger companies, maybe some chip manufacturers, in conjunction with, mm -hmm. the, you know, the technology solution, solutions providers. Yeah, absolutely. What do you see as maybe the the lowest hanging fruit, um, either? at a, a data analytics data analytics level or at a machine level as far as applications for machine learning or ai so i think you know the low hanging fruit pretty much has to tie to the technology that's available today and the, that technology that that could be implemented and is being implemented in some forms today um, would would be offsite it would be sending data to an analytic engine, having it crank through um, its process and algorithms and come back with autom either automatic or at least some action for an engineer or an operator to take on a machine. Um, in most cases, that's going to be aimed at, I mean, all, a lot of this is aimed at improving OEE, but um, you know, if it's done in an automatic way, and method, then those optimizations could be done without human intervention. Um, but it, again, it's going to mean taking data, collecting it, exporting it, cranking it, bringing it back um, in whatever fashion to to be implemented, as opposed to being on the machine and having you know the processor, machine processor itself, do some of those processes. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen some some early adopters of, you know, these uh, machine learning and AI applications. I know there's some, you know, uh, robotics pick and place applications um, to, to handle more, uh, a more adaptive approach to pick and place, uh, some things like right. that. But rolling that out yep. on, a, on a larger scale seems to me at least to be a, a little bit further down the road. And then we'll see these yep. data analytics applications that maybe aren't directly tied to machine control, but are somewhat tangentially yep. tied and I think the other thing I'd, I'd be interested to get your opinion on is, I think in, in general, the industrial automation and manufacturing uh, sector is a little resistant to change for, for good reason, for you know operational yeah. Yeah. Uh, reasons, supply chain reasons to, to make sure that there's robustness in the system, but also for, for safety reasons. Um, yep. How do you uh, interpret that? Well, um, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, at, at times, I'm frustrated by that, um, that, you know, rigidity, that, that um, resistance to change. But 
but you know, from all the points you made, especially safety, you have to celebrate it. That you know we're not um, changing constantly and and running the risks that might be associated with that, as as well as just supply chain, as you mentioned, and you know long term support and uh, the ability to get parts uh, ongoing can can really be tough if you just keep evolving every time a new processor comes out. Um, but you know, it, it does mean by definition that we're going to follow, not lead, um, in the area of these significantly advanced technologies like machine learning. All right. So I wanted to, uh, kind of shift, uh, while it is fun to talk about the future of technology, I wanted to shift more to some things that we're actually seeing in the field today. Um, I think, uh, JLS has invested pretty heavily in robotics and robotic solutions and developed what, what I would call uh, some, some very impressive systems. Um, so can you talk about what makes something a good application for robotics? And um, as, as a secondary uh, part to that, has that answer changed over the years as far as what, what was a good robotics application 5, 10, 20 years ago versus what is a good application today? Yeah, so, you know, it, it has changed um, in terms of what was, I'd, I'd say, viable. Um, again, some of it becomes you know, what's, what's, uh, worth the investment. Um, certainly in our space with the use of Delta robots, we've seen, for example, the payloads, um, change. They've, they've gotten much, much higher. So we can now pick up more products, more packages at one time, or, you know, multiple pick strategies and reduce the number of robots. So the investment goes down, the space limitation or space requirement um, diminishes, and voila, we have an application that um, prior to that we just couldn't address, and now you know we can answer it. Um, the use of hygienic robots, um, like we use, uh, certainly opened up people's eyes and opened up the possibility of putting them in, you know, somewhat nasty environments from a chemical and, and hot water. Uh, high pressure spray um, area so that that makes them more compelling and and easier and safer to implement you're not going to destroy them um, like you may have with a you know robot from 10 years ago so can you talk about what what do you think is the most important differentiator for JLS from the perspective of automation and robotics um, probably the number one thing, um, you know, it, it, as we've talked, our hygienic design is, is important to our customer base, but uh, I think more important than that is our experience. We've been doing this um, high-speed picking since 2002. Um, we're, we're now good at it. I can say that with confidence. Um, doesn't mean we're perfect. Uh, we still have our challenges and make mistakes, but, um, you know, we've got a really strong uh, library of designs, of knowledge, uh, a, a very strong group of people here with experience to grow from. Um, and that keeps us out of trouble. It keeps our customers out of trouble. Um, the worst thing for robotics in, in any space, especially ours, is, is that um, bad project and poorly executed, maybe an inappropriate use of whatever technology. And that can set back the the implementation of this advanced technology for a decade or the career of the people involved. Um, so, you know, we're, we're cautious in our approach. 
Um, we're very, very upfront and candid with our customers about what we believe is feasible. Um, and I think that has, has paid off well. We've had a number of customers say to us, well, wow, you're the first company that ever told us that we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. And, and you're right. Let's not go down that road. Let's, let's make sure again on a, a maybe a first application, we hit a home run and, and we build from that and not try to take on uh, a moon launch. Absolutely. So, so let's talk specifically about the Peregrine Kartner, which is one of JLS's newest machines or maybe the newest machine. Um, can you talk a little bit about what makes this machine different and some of the uh, technology that enables that? Yeah, we, we've been involved with cartoning and done cartoning applications for a long time, but it's never been a big part of our business. And we did not want to enter that space um, with, you know, a me too kind of strategy. So um, I had a lunch meeting uh, in the spring of last year and uh, one of our application uh, business development people shared a concept with me that, that essentially was based on track technology. And um, I came back and announced to our engineering team that we were going to develop this project or this product and, you know, turn it into a fast track project, which we did. Um, we targeted it specifically with some knowledge we had about where some gaps were, um, some struggles with cartoning applications um, in spaces we were familiar with and felt it also would open up opportunities for us within the general spaces that we were trying to operate. Um, we wanted to make sure whatever we did with cartoning was, was true to our core principles of simple design, um, you know, trying to avoid complex mechanical solutions. And um, the Peregrine has certainly achieved that, um, but um, it, it's very, has a very small footprint. Um, it eliminates a lot of conveyor transitions and, and conveyors in the process. Um, it actually simplifies the control scheme um, because of that. And um, it, it has incredibly fast change over time. So, we're very excited about its future um, as well as our customers are. How do you manage the, the, the you know, interplay between risk and innovation? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, JLS, we, we've been on the bleeding edge in our past. We don't want to be there again. We like to be on the leading edge, but, you know, leading edge and bleeding edge are one, one letter apart. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you need to be careful with that. We wanted to make sure um, that we could control the launch, control the, the the development of the machine so that we did it in a way that we could support it, our customers could embrace it, and that the technology, while new, was robust enough to, to stand the, the operation environment that our, that our customers have. And Can you talk a little bit about how you approach a new machine development is it uh, centered around an idea that someone has, or is it uh, specifically focused on pains that you've identified in the market? Um, and is that that process of innovation repeatable or something that is, you know, uh, luck or chance? Well, it's it's been a mixture. Um, you know, the Peregrine, as I mentioned a little bit before, was was somewhat spur of the moment, but it came from someone's knowledge of a of an application area that had developed over decades so it wasn't in, by any stretch a shot in the dark we had a lot of discussions about how big the market was and how 
how, you know, what part of it we felt we could serve with the Peregrine. Um, we recently introduced a vertical pack capability with our Osprey case packer. So it can convert from horizontal to vertical pack and back very quickly. Um, and you know that's something where we studied that requirement, listened to our customer base. Um, we're far from the first company to offer that. Uh, I think what we've done with the Osprey again is pretty unique. It's very compact, uh, very simple to change over. Um, and you know what we've seen in competitive offerings, it, it's a it's a winner in that regard. It's going to allow it to go into applications that um, other vertical pack, horizontal pack machines could not do. Um, but that was an instance that was more, much more deliberate. It was part of a uh, ongoing process of evaluation. When when we developed our Osprey Flex, what we call Osprey Flex machine, we developed it over um, a period of years, and we developed, of course, a concept first. And that concept became um, not Jello, but it got molded many times. It changed many times. We developed a matrix internally of what application areas the Osprey Flex could address, um, should address, and and targeted the design after those areas that we felt best dovetailed our current offering and best fit in the markets we served. And it wasn't just a vertical machine for the sake of having that capability, but more it was going to help our, our customer base take some next steps with, you know, retail ready or, or vertical pack requirements that, that they're seeing more and more. So there's definitely been some exciting new developments with the Peregrine and with the Osprey using new technology, new robotics, new vision systems, uh, the Longstater linear motor systems, uh, all really exciting stuff. But I'm curious to know uh, what, what's coming next for JLS uh, and, and for the future of packaging. Yeah. So, um, you know, what we've done with the Peregrines um, specifically um, is in what we've called a phase one development where, um, you know, it's a loading solution integrated with track that's integrated to a variety of different formers. We have a couple um, preferred vendors or partners that we work with on the forming, carton forming. Um, but what we're working on at the moment and what we think we're close to getting our first order for is a um, robotic closer that will um, allow us to eventually make the the um, uh, uh, Peregrine machine a, a, a monoblock kind of solution and again keep it very compact um, and allow it to go in places where other cartoning technologies are, are just not able to go because they just they're, they're just too big um, if for no other reason. So if people want to learn more about JLS, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, the, the easiest thing to do is go on our website, which is uh, JLSautomation.com. Um, we always appreciate, you know, any any questions people have and we're, we're anxious to answer them. We are on all the social media sites as well, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Um, so certainly you can connect to us through there, but the best place to get us is, is the website. Awesome. Do you have any closing thoughts to share with the listeners about uh, JLS or about any of the topics that, that we've discussed today? 
Well, I, I think, you know, from our standpoint, because of everything going on with COVID, our, our value proposition to our customers is, is increased. Um, so, you know, we're, we're very bullish about the future of our company and our people. Um, we know our customers need more of what we provide them. They, they have plenty of challenges today to deal with, but long-term, I think it's in a good place. And I think automation um, in general is, is going to just continue to grow. As we talked earlier, machine learning and AI getting incorporated into machinery and uh, all the opportunities that brings along makes the automation space very exciting. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Craig, for joining this conversation. Appreciate having you on. You're welcome. Pleasure. All right, everybody, we have some amazing episodes lined up, both technical topics and interviews with thought leaders in automation, robotics, AI, and IIoT. You'll definitely want to make sure you keep an eye out for those. So the best way to do that is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel by searching This Is Automation in YouTube. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let us know by leaving a review and a comment on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time on This Is Automation. Automation.